Well, good morning. Good to see you. Welcome to Summer in the Psalms. It's summer in Michigan, just in case you forgot. I don't know. The weather clearly forgot. The Lord maybe forgot. I'm not sure. But I'm excited for uh, just the series that we're in over and over again. I've just been reminded how God speaks through different seasons and through different books and different topics. And I feel like every single week, these last couple weeks specifically, God just reminded me of things and challenged me and convicted me of things. Um, because I've needed it. I'm four weeks into a newborn journey that I am totally inept and have no idea what I'm doing with. So uh, I come to this place to get reminded that I'm not crazy and that I will sleep at some point. So thank you for your reminders. I appreciate all of you. Um, it's funny because the last couple weeks has just been kind of obviously figuring out life with a newborn, but it's also been figuring out how to use baby stuff. No one gives you a primer on how to put together a stroller like YouTube is okay, but sometimes they don't always work or like put together a car seat or how not to kill your kid when in the car seat, like all those kind of things or uh, how to calm her down. I mean, there's so many things that I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but it's been fun because the last couple of weeks we get, we've got to slowly unpack gifts and things that people have just been so generous to us as well. So it's cool. Um, one of them is, is this very precious thing. So all the moms in the room, you can just say, oh, that's so cute. I did not make this by the way, but um, it's funny because my mother-in-law actually hand-knit this. It's like really, really incredible what she did. Uh, and she's kind of obsessed with knitting. And I think ever since we had a baby, it just went to the next level because <laughs> literally every single thing that I have that Lennon wears seems to be knit from my mother-in-law, Lynn. And so it's funny because uh, I remember back, my mom used to knit and I would try to knit sometimes and it never ended up looking like that. I don't know if you've ever tried and you're like, yeah, I've never made this, but it's really cute because... Uh, not only is she so small and so little, this doesn't even fit her because she's still so small, but it's amazing how when you're good at something, it kind of boosts your like self-esteem and identity. When you're bad at something, you have a really low view of yourself because anytime I would try to knit something like this, I just was like, I'm a terrible person. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and it's funny because for her, it's not really an identity thing, but if you look at like the rest of your life, there's certain things that you and I do. It's maybe not knitting, but there's other things you and I do that when we do them well, we have a great view of ourselves. When we don't do them well, we have a very low view of ourselves. Actually, we're confronted almost every single day with, with our image and our perception of ourselves, and, and we have to reckon with that. If you walk through the Meyer line later today, you're going to see 10, 20 different magazines who are going to depict for you indirectly or directly how you should look and how you should be yourself, what's most important to your spouse or to your friends or to your diet. I mean, there's so many things you're confronted with that. If you scroll through Instagram, I mean, the hashtag Fitstagram is there for a reason, right? Because you look around and, and you scroll through your explore page and find that you're supposed to look like this bodybuilder or this bikini model or this celebrity or this athlete who invests millions of dollars into their body. And we actually end up carrying a very, very low view of ourselves. I mean, you can trace this all the way back to how you grew up. You can look back and say, here's kind of my religious background or my faith story. Depending on where you grew up and what church maybe you were a part of, you have a version of what kind of sinful nature looks like in your life. You have a version of, am I a good person or am I a bad person? You have some kind of concept of that, even as a young kid. Uh, I was forced to reckon with this because I had a loving mentor say to me, John, you know that you have a lot of false humility? And I was like, I have humility. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> but you said it's false, so I'm not really sure what that's supposed to mean. He said, well, whenever someone compliments you, you always say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Or, I didn't really do that good of a job, or I could have preached that better or shot that better or whatever. He said, you know what that really that is? It's quite a low view of yourself. 
that you, you don't think you can actually do things well or actually uh, receive a compliment is, is real humility versus false humility. And so all of those things play into our, I, what I think is really our identity as human beings. We often walk around, you and I, maybe you know it, maybe you don't know it, with a very, very low view of ourselves that actually is not reflected in Scripture, that you can't find it anywhere. I mean, you can't find uh, some of the things you're about to talk about without really having to reckon with the Scriptures and really reckoning with what God says about us. And, And to be honest, the sermon I'm about to preach, I did not grow up believing. I didn't believe one bit of it. I didn't believe it was true of you. I didn't believe it was true of me. I didn't believe it was true of us collectively as a whole, as human beings. And it's something that God has really moved in me. That's why I said, if you're here last week, I said, I cannot wait to share this because I think it's a work God is doing fresh in me. But here's what I want to tell you real up front. If you let God challenge your thinking about yourself, how you view yourself, transformation happens. Let me say that one more time. If you really let God in and let him change how you think about yourself, your perception of your own image, of your body, of your personality, transformation happens. And let me show you how. In Psalm 139, the psalm we're about to dive into, David literally goes through really, I think, three or four identity-forming truths that I want to look at. I want to explore them because they have radically begun to shape me over these last couple of months. And I think for some of us, we need to hear these truths over and over again. But here's, let me give away what I'm going to say right off the top. How God sees me changes how I see me. How God sees me changes how I see me. When I get a clear picture of the way God thinks about me and views my situations and interacts in my pain and my suffering, interacts with how I look or how I feel or how I'm wired as a person, that starts to shift everything else in my life. Behavior, thoughts, patterns, it'll change your marriage, it'll change your budgeting habits, it'll change how you parent your kids, it'll change how you interact with grandparents or grandkids. How God sees me changes how I see me. If you don't believe me, look at what he says in verse 1. Psalm 139, verse 1. If you have the scriptures there, you already saw it. He writes, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. That is the most haunting phrase in this entire psalm. Because we think if people really knew us, they wouldn't like us anymore. If people really searched us or or looked through our browser history, they wouldn't respect us, they wouldn't value us, they wouldn't love us, they would leave us. But that's not what that David says is true about who God is and how he sees us. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar. You're acquainted, some translations say, with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Haunting verse number two, right? Like I don't always want to let people know what I'm thinking or want to say. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. What is David saying here? What's important to go? Truth number one is God is close. David is saying in in all of your thoughts, in all of your relationships, in all of your interactions, God is not removed and out far off like a cosmic judge waiting for you to screw up. He's actually close. Close. David's point is that what's beautiful about God and the way he sees you is that he knows you, he's searched you, he knows your thoughts, your words, and your behaviors, and he still stays close. And some of you have been on the other side of someone finding out something about you and leaving you. 
And maybe that's a marriage, maybe that's a friendship, maybe it's an employer. And God's saying, that's not how I see the circumstances of your life. How I see them is that I know them and I'm acquainted with them. I understand them. I may not love all of them, but I'm going to stay close. I'm going to be near. God is close. And we tend to say the opposite. Well, if people got close and they really knew me or they searched my thoughts and my words, they wouldn't love me, respect me, and value me. And God is saying, I'm the opposite. I am close when you feel like I'm going to leave you or abandon you or eventually forsake you because of what you've done. How God sees me in those moments changes how I start to see me. Because I don't start to see myself as a lost cause or a screw up or an F up or whatever you grew up thinking or your parents told you. And God is saying, when, when you do those things, when you think those things, when you process those things, I'm actually still close. I stay close. And that, for me, is an identity-forming truth. There's people that model this in my life for me because I need them to. You may have people like this. Maybe you don't yet have people like this. There's two immediate names come to mind, people that sit at my wedding that I still talk to almost every week. Uh, their names are Jason and Brent. Uh, Jason and Brent are two guys that, for me, are, are a couple steps ahead of me in life, like with family and even in age and just in career. But they're guys who I would say fully know me and, and are still willing to stay close to me. They, they are people that hold me accountable for sin in my life, people that I can openly confess to and say, here's where I'm struggling, here's why I need prayer. And, and people that say, you know what, I don't affirm that you did that really messed up thing, but I'm going to stay close. I'm going to walk with you. And for me, it's really a glimpse of how God interacts with us. And some of our church backgrounds and even faith stories, that didn't happen. It wasn't safe to be open and to be vulnerable and to confess that I didn't do this right. I'm not living right in this area because for fear that you would be kicked out, right? Or excommunicated from the family or, or whatever the narrative you told yourself was. People like Jason Brent, obviously my wife, Lindsay, they're people where it's okay to be close and still be known. Like that starts to form my identity. Let me tell you, what I mean, Tim Keller, who's a theologian, philosopher, pastored in Manhattan for 30 plus years, he writes us about this truth in Psalm 139. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Some of you have experienced that before. To be, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. That someone would search us and know us yet not love us, would not stay close. But to be fully known and truly loved is well a lot like being loved by God. That, that to me is an identity-forming truth. That will change the way inter- you interact. Let's keep reading Psalm 139, verse 7. The truths continue. Uh, David keeps writing and changes his tone and says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And the depths in, in psalmist language, really the depths they believed, uh, the depths are kind of like Davy Jones' locker. If you ever watch Pirates of the Caribbean, any Johnny Depp fans, are I the only one? Okay, perfect. We have friends here. What's funny, though, is, is the depths is kind of where chaos and death live. That's what ancient Hebrew thought believed. That's what ancient Israelites, even in Jesus' day, believed. He's saying, even if I go to that place where it's dark and chaotic and I feel out of control, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn or if I settle on the far side of the sea, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. I'm secure. And if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. What is David saying? Truth number two, friends. God is close even when I feel out of control. 
How, any of you feel out of control these last six to 12 months? I know I have. Moments where I just felt like, you know what, I was pretty good at managing my life and that happened. Or, or this crisis emerged or that bill came in and I was not expecting it. Yet David is saying in the darkness, in the chaos, in the depths of the sea, in, in the moments of the beautiful dawn, God, you are close. Even when I feel out of control. In the ER with your aging dad, David is saying, you don't have to feel alone. I'm close when I feel out of control. On that third round of IVF and another negative pregnancy test, God is saying, I'm close, even when you feel out of control. On that silent drive home from the funeral, God is saying, I I'm close, even when you feel out of control. When you try your hardest, you still fail that super important exam that you stressed about, you cried over, you, you sweated over. God is saying, I'm close, even when you feel out of control. And when we start to internalize that and not just think intellectually that that's true, but we start to let that bleed into our very soul, that starts to change our identity. It starts to change how we view ourselves. We go from having a low view of ourselves to having a godly view of ourselves. God, when, when God changes how he sees me, I, I begin to change. How God sees me really does change me. And here's the third truth I want to give away to you. It is, as you read through the psalm, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, it's poetic the whole way, right? It's beautiful. If I could write Psalm 139 and take credit for it, I would, because it's one of those things that sticks out to you. Even if you grew up in church and you haven't been in church in a long time, you kind of have some of these phrases, or maybe they're on a Pinterest board somewhere in your phone or on your laptop, but what we're about to read is kind of the, is the tension, it's the climax of this verse. And here's what, in Psalm 139, 13, David keeps writing, he says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, God, you saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them? They would outnumber the grains of sand, but when I'm awake, I'm still with you. Truth number three, God created me, which means, which changes really how I view myself and my circumstances. This is the one for me that was like a light bulb moment, even a few, as fresh as a few weeks ago. God created me. And that's not like a super cheesy kind of Christian kids thing to understand. It's like when you really believe that and you let that transfer into the depths of your being, it changes how you view yourself because you no longer have to be self-made. You're no longer kind of rated based on how you perform spiritually this week versus last week or how many sales you brought in this week or last week or how you're doing parenting this week or, the, or last week. It actually is based on something so much deeper and so much bigger that you were created by God. And God loves you and is close to you and knows you better than anyone else, as terrifying as that sounds. And that, to me, is the fundamental truth David is trying to, to remind us. God created me. I remember, uh, this is probably back, I was just going into high school, 
and George W. Bush was coming to Kalamazoo, and it was like a big deal. Like people were like, okay, like he's on the presidential run or whatever. I can't wait to, to go see him. And so, or maybe you weren't. I don't know where you line up, but some people were excited to see him. Some people hated that he was coming. Anyway, my parents were among the people that were excited to see him. And so we made the trek. I was homeschool, which means you really don't have any work all day. You just kind of hang out and do crafts. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, Mom. Um, but we had the day off that particular Friday from homeschool. And so we all went. It was a political class, I guess. So we went there. There's a rally. We kind of lined up with thousands of other people packed into this center in Kalamazoo. And we get there, and, and you kind of see like this path through the crowd. There's like clear lines of where pro- we're thinking there's going to be kind of this presidential procession where he comes up and he's making his bid for president. It's going to be this incredible moment. And, and hopefully you get to shake his hand or something. Well, the rally is like counting down 30, 29, 28, 30 seconds left to hit zero. And we're like, okay, everyone turns to the back of the center, hoping he's going to walk through here and they can throw their kids or get a kiss on the cheek or something for George W. Bush. And they come through this line and it's like, he's not there. And then he pops up onto the stage from the back of the stage. And I'm like, come on, man. Like we waited, we tried to cram against this thing. So then at the end, we're thinking, okay, here's our chance. And my dad is like, I'm going to make sure one of my kids touch this presidential figure at some point. And so there's like five rows of human beings in front of us, okay? And so we finally see him finish a speech. Everyone's cheering. It's an awesome moment. And then he steps down off the stage and starts to walk that path. And we're like, here's the moment. And I was like clueless what was happening. I didn't really care. But my dad is like, we're going to make sure we get Jordan, which is my youngest sister. who was like six, maybe seven at the time. So literally my dad crowd surfs her up, like five <laughs> rows of people. You just see her kind of like bopping along, bopping along. And, and finally, I think he's got like one hand on her ankle maybe. And she was like getting stretched out by all these different people. So we're getting there. And finally, she got kind of just slaps him. <laughs> He's like, boom, I touched his hand. And then my parents are like, yeah, you did it. Like we have the anointing or whatever. I don't know what they were looking for out of that experience, but it was like a, a chance to get close to power. So anyway, so this moment kind of wraps up. We go back and I'm, I was thinking about this years later. It's funny because depending on how you grew up and depending on your background, that interaction is so similar to how we view our relationship with God. Like if I can just try hard enough and climb over enough people or do enough things and someone holds my ankle maybe and I reach out and grab him, I can touch him. I can connect with something supernatural or some power figure. And that's how I grew up thinking God was. He was this power figure, some divine cosmic ruler that I had to appease and figure out and didn't really make sense. There's all this mystery. And that changed how I viewed myself. That changed so many. There are things that I regret doing that I would have not have done in high school and in college had I had a right view of myself in light of who God was. There, there are mistakes, things I've said, people I've hurt in the wake of not an understanding that how God sees me changes how I see me. See, God's first relationship with us in, in, in Scripture is creator. It's Adam and Eve being formed out of dust. I, I don't even know how that works. But, but it's, it's the unfinished, it's the raw materials that God puts together as a designer and lovingly creates. It's, this is why, to be honest, this is why as a church we condemn abortion. It's why we don't stand by and say that that's okay or we should let it just kind of be like a, 
a neutral thing. It's like, no, we, we, we believe that God created human life. We, we stand up for those who can't speak for themselves. But it's also why we rally around families who are fostering and adopting. We don't just choose one and say, well, as soon as they're out of the womb, it's your problem. <laughs> like, I'm glad none of you did that for me. I'd be in trouble because I need help. We need support. It's like, it takes a village, right? So it's funny because there, there are people, on, even in the political spectrums, who will say one is more important than the other. But as Christ followers, we don't buy into that trap. We say, you know what? It's true that God created human beings, which means that from the very point of conception, that's important. But you also trace it all the way and say, we care for elderly people. We care for people that don't have loving parents. We care for people that are hungry and poor and on the margins of society because all life at the end of the day is God-given, is God-created. See, that starts to change how not only you see yourself, but it changes how you see other people too. If the person you disagree with on Facebook is still created by God, that should change your interaction. If it doesn't, then you need to reckon, have I really wrestled with the fact that I'm, I'm dealing with a created human being of God? This is why I think it's really exciting because uh, Chris and, and I think Blake two weeks ago, I'm not sure, alluded to the fact that we had the strongest financial year we've had, at least in the last couple years. And I celebrate that for a ton of different reasons. And John Michael pointed this out. Number one, it's, it's an obedient step on our church's behalf. It's, it's learning to be generous as a culture, which is incredible. But the second thing is I, we got to do something as a leadership team we've never had to do before. And we had to figure out how do we tithe on this surplus and give it away? Because we felt like that was the right thing, not to just hoard it or put it towards nicer chairs. or I don't know what we would do with it. But um, So we started to process that and think about it. And I said, you know what? It makes most sense to me and to us to give it to local partners who are doing what we're talking about here. People like Hand to Hand and Hope Unexpected, two partners we support financially, we support with manpower and volunteer hours. But you know what those groups are doing? Those groups are, are affirming indirectly or directly for the recipients, that every child is created by God. That every single mom who feels unseen and unloved, she's created by God. For, for the single dad at Oriole Park Elementary who's trying to figure out how do I feed my kids and work three jobs at the same time, th that's a reminder. Maybe that little bag of snacks or breakfast that we're able to help provide and help give people a hand up instead of just handing out stuff, Maybe that is a step for them to realize my life does matter. People, I'm seen and loved, and God is close even when I feel totally out of control. There's a verse that you probably skipped over, that I skip over all the time in verse 16, that I want to draw your eyes back to, because I think for me, this was the moment that I was, I, I don't know, it was just kind of an enlightening moment. In verse 16, here's what David says. He says, your eyes saw my unformed body. Now, watching my wife give birth, obviously, I'm thinking about this first. I'm thinking about, oh my goodness, like for the last nine months, you've had this, these raw materials somehow come together, and God designed something incredible. It's, it's an amazing thing. But the, the Hebrew idea here, when we, when we read unformed body, the Hebrew word for this is embryo. It's literally, embryo in kind of the Hebrew thought was this, this concept of an unformed vessel, Right? You're talking about agricultural societies, people that built their own houses, and a lot of them in this area of the world were mud and clay. So literally, they're, they're familiar with potters forming their cups and forming their, their furniture and forming the structures of their homes. 
And that's what David is saying, that even at that earliest point, God is intimately involved with creating life, with taking these raw materials just like a potter and carefully guiding this clay until it becomes something beautiful and useful. I think that was what hit me about this verse, that no longer do I see myself as a self-made creature who has to outperform and outwork and out-earn everybody else around me to prove my worth. But, but over and over again, David uses words like created and knit and wove together and made two different times. It's this idea of creation. God is described all throughout Scripture as this careful artist creating and forming you and I. And how God sees me as a product of his beautiful, perfect design, that begins to change how I see me. That changes how I look at myself in the mirror. That changes how I look at myself on the scale. That changes how I interact in the Meyer checkout line or as I scroll through Facebook or Instagram or see that person getting that job done on their body that I couldn't afford or don't want. Like It changes all of those things because I don't have to be self-made. This is why, to me, something like this is so fascinating like you look at this beautiful, I don't even know what this is called, a sweater, a cardigan, I'm not sure, it's got the little heart buttons, that's so precious, <laughs> I want to wear this, you'd all make that face to me too, but you look at this, it's like obviously someone carefully and with technique and intention and design went through this. Now if you juxtapose that with, I, um, I had to literally ask Lindsay, she has like some old knitting stuff in, her, in the basement, I said, could you go find some of that stuff, because I thought, like, for the next couple minutes, see, I don't even know what to use. I'm just going to go with these. For the next couple minutes, I would show you my attempt at making this. And so for the next two hours, as you sit here, I'm just kidding. I honestly don't even know what to do with this. I'm just looking at it, and I'm trying to figure out in the moment what I'm supposed to do with this. But if I tried to knit something on my own with no, just try to form something and make something that looks as beautiful as this little cute cardigan thing, um, it would look like a mess. I'm going to spare you that for this moment, but it would look like a mess. You can see this was my attempts earlier to make something. <laughs> this was a beautiful ball of yarn, and now it's not. But, but to me, that's so... Thank you. I really need that. I'm very useful with this. Yep, I definitely need that back. Um, now it's going to fall. But as I'm trying to do this illustration, that seems to not be working because I can't figure out how to put this back in. Here we go. That was supposed to be funny. I'm sorry, that was not funny. You're all just looking very tired. But um, it's funny because like, as I watch my mother-in-law, Lynn, knit and, and take these raw materials that clearly I don't know what I'm doing with, as you interact with this, it, for her as a designer, as an artist, it's taken time, it's taken intention, it's taken technique. She's worked at it. She's, she's an artist at her craft. But if I said in front of you, which clearly is obviously a lie now, but if I said, guys, I'm really good at knitting too. Like, you just watch what I can make with this beautiful white yarn and these swords or hooks or whatever tools, <laughs> pencils. I'm not really sure what I'm holding. Pins, like, I don't know what they are. But as you look at it, it's like if I tried to create that same thing, you would all say, wow, John, you have an incredible lack of self-awareness. Like, you're not good at that. But, but that, in some way, when we try to form our own identity and make our own lives and, and base our identity on work and career and performance and uh, our bodies or our image or our perception from our boss or our best friend or our spouse, we end up looking like a total mess to those around us. We don't always see it because we think we're doing a really good job, but everyone else in our life sees it. 
But that starts to change when we, when we truly get a picture of how God sees us as created, as designed, as carefully and wonderfully made. For me, that is one of the most powerful things about, as you trace through the rest of Scripture, about how God views us all over and over again. They use the language of sonship and adoption and creation. It's these, all these family terms. And I thought as we kind of wrap this up that we could read out some of those together. Actually, Paul writes this in Romans 8. And I want us to read this out loud together. Here we go. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. How does God think about you? As a son and as a daughter, who was far off and broken who didn't have the potential to, to make themselves, but with the cross and the beauty of Jesus Christ has brought you back into the family. This is the power of the gospel itself. And if you look through your own life, almost every single sin you will ever commit comes from a place of misguided, misdirected, misplaced identity, not truly understanding and grabbing a hold of how God sees you. See, you can play this out with some of those core longings all of us have. Every single one of us wants to be loved. But if you try to find love apart from a vibrant and real relationship with Jesus himself, the only one who can give you what you really want, you're going to find yourself in bed with people you don't know, doing things you said you wouldn't do, co committing things against your own body. You said, I would never do that. I'd never go there. I'd never look at that again. If you try to find love in all this other places, your identity starts to show. Same thing with security, especially as men. So much of us, we want to have security and stability in our lives. We want to have at least a feeling like we've got some stuff together. We've got two feet on the ground. If you try to find security in how much you earn, you're always going to be let down because someone's always going to make more than you. And someone's always going to out-earn you. Someone's always going to outsell you. Someone's always going to have a bigger office or a larger division, bigger budgets. And there's going to be things that you do. There's going to be corners you cut, ways you cheat, ways you break your own integrity to get ahead if you really believe that your identity comes from your own ability to have security. But if you really believe that God has given you innate security and stability because you are a created child of him, you start to get free from all of that other stuff. You start to get free from the, ability, like the temptations that come with misplaced security. The same is true for belonging. I mean, I've got a wife and I've got a daughter. I know one of her innate longings is to belong, is to feel accepted and important and valued just based on who she is. And I want that too. But if you try to find belonging in every other place apart from a relationship with God, you ultimately are going to do things that you said you would never do. You're going to say things you said you'd never say. You're going to spend money on things you never wanted to spend money on because you just have a feeling 
of needing to belong. Maybe that's a neighbor who you want to feel like you belong to that tribe or it's a political party or it's a business group or it's a church even. I don't know. But but if we allow our, our identity to get misplaced, we're going to constantly come back to these broken patterns of thinking and living. But friends, the hope is that how God sees me changes how I see me. And, and the hope for your future and your family is if you grab onto that, transformation happens. Things start to change. And so I just want to ask the question, what do we do with this? What's next? Like, how do we move on from this reality? And I was thinking, I was like, how do you, how do, you do this? Because it's such a mental thing, like allowing God to shape how you see. You can't really go out and buy it or just start to do it. You've got to figure it out. Uh, much more spiritual than that. And so immediately I thought, but what did I just do? Like the last three or four weeks, what have I been doing? And for the last three or four weeks, inadvertently, I've really sat and meditated on Psalm 139 more than I have maybe any other psalm in my entire life. And God has started to slowly, carefully, wonderfully tweak some of those things that, that were messed up in my identity, messed up in how I was even seeing myself. And so I don't know if any of you are going to do this, but I, I just thought, well, why don't we do something called the Psalm 139 Challenge? And for seven, the next seven days, to, to set a timer on your phone or your watch, and for a minute and 39 seconds, just ask God one thing. Say, God, would you remind me of my identity in you? That's it. For a minute and 39 seconds, which all of us have, all of us can do, whether it's on the way to work or in the morning or at night when the kids are in bed, whatever it is, to say, you know, I'm just going to sit and in the quietness of the moment with nothing else going on, I'm going to say, God, would you just remind me of my identity in you for a minute and 39 seconds? So I'm signing up since I offered the challenge. I'm going to do it with you. But I'm just going to let God keep doing that work because I know that my, my identity and my behaviors and my thoughts and my future, to be honest, is at stake if I do not do this. That there will be things I don't want to do and things I regret 10, 15, 20 years down the road if I don't let God do this work in me. And so what I want to do is pray, and then we're going to sing a song that just reminds us of our identity, reminds us of how God interacts and sees us, and then we'll close out. So God, we just bring all this before you. We bring uh, our needs before you. We bring our sometimes self-absorption before you. We bring our own fears and worries and doubts. And God, I'm asking that today, you would show up in a way that we didn't expect in our lives. And even in this week, as some of us take on this challenge, and we just sit there and say, God, just remind me of who I am in you, of my God-given identity, of the worth and the image and the beauty you have embedded in my spirit, my soul. God, I pray that you'd start to shift things for us. You'd start to change things that we didn't think could change. And we would truly understand and grasp just a little bit better how you see us as your children adopted into your family broken and far away that you just lovingly drew back so we pray that in jesus name amen amen i'm gonna invite you to stand real quick and uh before you do that every one of you has a communion set under your seat uh, maybe you already drank it and that's fine if you're hungry. I'm not going to judge you for that. But right under your chair, there's a communion set. And during this next song, we really believe that uh, as we've prayed and, and sought God on this, that communion is one of those tangible things that as you're actually taking it in, that in some way, I hope that God will remind you 
of the great lengths he went to, to secure your identity, to secure your belonging, to secure his love for you in your own mind. And so as we sing this song, whenever you feel like it's ready, I'd invite you just to take that as the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for you. So let's worship Jesus together.